0: Welcome to Sin City. Get ready for in-depth chat on new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you cinephiles. Only on CMRU.ca and Feel Loud Images. And now to your host, Nick Manenses. Hello there. And welcome back to Sin City. I am your host, Nick, and joining me today is my good friend and the citizen king of our show, Emmanuel Aquinobla. Hello there, Emmanuel. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Glad to be here. This is, I've been looking forward to this episode.
0: Oh, so have I. So have I. So today, for our final episode of 2021, we will be discussing A topic that has been a year in the making since we started this show and one that has been very close to our hearts. And that's, of course, the work of the great renowned Stanley fucking Kubrick. I have like I am very intimidated to do this episode because Stanley Kubrick What cinephile doesn't know who Kubrick is, first of all. You cannot call yourself a true cinephile if you don't know who Stanley Kubrick is. The man has changed cinema forever. He is one of the greatest, one of the most influential filmmakers of all time and still is even years after his passing, rivaled only by others like Charlie Chaplin and Alfred Hitchcock. So with Emmanuel's help here, we want to do an episode that will do him and his work justice an episode that he won't be turning in his grave over.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing, too, is that Kubrick, his appreciation came later. Like, a lot of his films came out, and, like, people were, like, mixed about him. But, you know, over the years, people have been a reason praising them. And it's weird because he has a great influence on a lot of filmmakers, but he's not really, like, uh, touted all the time. He's not really that known. He, he's known, but it's not... You know, whenever people talk about influences, it's usually like either Hitchcock or another mainstream uh, director, but Kubrick, he's kind of like that silent uh, influence because he was so unique in his style that people didn't really jive with it in the beginning. But then over time, true cinephiles, like you said, that were growing up to be filmmakers, they really were fans of him. And so critics are looking back and, yeah, he's done great work. So... It's interesting that, you know, that happened to him. But he's, yeah, he's one of the best filmmakers ever.
0: Absolutely. No no question. Absolutely. And in fact, so many of the great filmmakers working today, from Steven Spielberg, Quentin Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, they were all influenced by this one man from his aesthetic through his works. And before we take a deep dive into Kubrick's works, we're going to take a bit of a short few minutes to discuss why we love the man like what is it that makes Stanley Kubrick tick and for starters I have to say the messages in his films if there's one word I could use to describe all of Kubrick's films it would be timeless because Kubrick his films they speak they have something to say about all of us about the human condition Kubrick is a master of dehumanization. He peels all those layers of humanity and goes deep in our flaws, our vices, our failures, our our very own hubris.
1: Yeah. yeah, and then also he, a lot of, you look at a lot of his films, it's always about how institutions are dysfunctional, whether it be the military, whether it be uh, a government, whether it be, you know, any social convention, like, War is a big thing that he tackles, which is, you know, that applies to military and also how we're supposed to act as human beings with morality and stuff like that. And he also deals with, um, you know, aspects of like sex and, you know, sexuality and how that, you know, that's a part of who we are as humans. And just, you know, it's always about the extreme of human, um, like human behavior to the negative extent where it can go. And he always likes putting that in the institutional aspect of, whether it be the military, whether it be society, you know, juveniles, young people, any type of institutional thing. And another thing he likes to do is he likes to tackle uncomfortable subjects or subjects that, you know, people wouldn't really want to talk about. So he goes from anywhere from, you know, a guy in Lolita, a younger, an older guy having a relationship with a young girl or... And Clockwork Orange, you know, the fact of these young kids, you know, society's gotten so decadent that these kids are going around basically committing crimes at their own whims, basically. And so, but he always tackles like things that people wouldn't normally want to talk about or, but it's also, it's always a social commentary to some extent, what he's doing.
0: You're right. In fact, what you mentioned, all of these disturbing, serious topics that he tackles in his films, That's probably one of the reasons why most, if not all of his films were subject to controversy and polarizing reviews back in the day, because different times, of course. But as you mentioned, as time passed, Kubrick's films have been vindicated by history. They have received critical re-evaluations, and now most of them are, are now considered unanimous masterpieces, if not all of them, really. Many of them are actually currently in the u.s congress for for film for being very historically aesthetically and culturally significant as well
1: yeah yeah 2001 is one of them and i believe i want to say a clockwork orange or either um the shining one of those but definitely 2001 is in the library of congress or uh, because they're the ones that preserve um movies that have cultural significance and, yeah. Col- and Kubrick and was able to tap into the culture of America, like American culture, really culture around the world through an American lens um, or Western lens, I guess. He, he did a lot of films in England, too. A lot of some of his films are set in, in England and things like that. So, but he was able to capture society, you know, in the sense of what makes us tick. But it's always, he always, and another thing, too, he's always tackled a specific different genre. That's why he's, he's, he's great because he could go from doing a period drama, doing, you know, a sci-fi film to doing, uh, uh, a, a war film. And so, and if you look at Kubrick, he was always, if you think about it, I think his mindset was whichever genre I do, I want to make sure I do the, like the landmark in that genre. And I
0: think he did that. Exactly. He did. He sure as hell did. Yeah. And. Another thing that makes Kubrick really tick as a filmmaker and director would have to be the cinematography as well. My God, the cinematography. Every film that Kubrick has made is just stunningly, technically beautiful. 2001, A Space Odyssey, I'll get to that eventually as we discuss it, but it helps that Kubrick was skilled In the art of photography, he studied photography before he became a filmmaker, and it shows like the production design of his films. It's not just there for the sake of scenery porn or eye candy, but it has a purpose in telling the story, a clockwork orange. The characters, especially Alex and his droogs, are dressed in white to symbolize how innocence is being twisted, and the design of London in the dystopia with pictures of nudists and naked women to show how our society has gone down the lowest common denominator. And eyes wide shut, it looks very surreal, the landscapes, the costumes, like we are entering into a dream, falling down the rabbit hole. And Everything was planned. Kubrick is very meticulous. Like, nothing is an accident. He planned it all from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, every single shot he does. Because Kubrick is a perfectionist. So he, he's, he's also, I mean, people talk about all the time. People that work with him. He was a very much a control freak. So he had, he had his hands in every side of the production. Because it's all about the vision to him. And so, and him being a, he was a photographer for Look Magazine. So that really helped him. And then he taught himself, he's taught himself basically all aspects of film production. So he knew, he knows what he's, whenever he's making a film, he knows what he wants to tell. He knows what vision he wants. But he, he makes, he feels it. It's kind of like each image, each shot in the scene has meaning, whether it be like a, a lamp in the background or, like you said, images of ne- people, ne- naked people on walls, things like that. Um, everything has symbolism in his film. Because he's a visual artist. He's trying to show, he's trying to show, represent his themes through the, through the visuals and what he's trying to, the messages of his stories, of his films. Right. And that's a mark of a good, uh, great filmmaker.
0: It is, yeah. It's one of the best, if not the best example of visual storytelling I've ever seen in a film as well. And of course, Kubrick is one of the first directors to have used the Steadicam with his use of long takes, long, continuous shots, especially in The Shining and Full Metal Jacket. It's again, it's not just there for the sake of because it's beautiful or stunt or just for the sake of cinematography, but it also um, it's like it serves also a purpose in telling the story. And it seems we are literally following the character in their journey where in their perspective, their point of views, it really gives his films a very multifaceted look.
1: Oh, his cinematography. Hmm. Yeah, because he, I mean, he battles he, there's stories of him battling with cinematographers on <laughs> certain films. But, like I said, he has a certain vision, and and his 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 trademark style and his shot design is. He uses a lot of wide angle lenses and he uses a lot of wide shots. And I like how he always zooms in. When there's a dramatic moment, he zoom, he zooms in on one character. And you know, the kind of heightened the tension or heightened the uh, drama a little bit. Whether that be whether a character finds out something or there's a dramatic turn in the film, he always does a slow zoom in to, to one particular character.
0: Right. In fact, exactly. oh, amazing
1: which is amazing because no other, I haven't seen any other director do that. That's like a, that's like a Pacific Kubrick thing, what he does. Right. And also he loves doing, um, long shots and wide shots, like I said. And, and if you notice his, he uses a particular, um, composition. Like, um, whenever you, uh, whenever people do photography or filmmaking, there's these rules that you go through. It's called composition or, um, where you have certain rules and one of them that he likes to do is leading lines, which is also be called one, one eyes perspective, where you have a shot and it has depth to it and it leads your eye all the way to the center of the uh, either the center of the frame or where he wants you to, you to look at. He put, he, I think that's in all his films. There's at least one shot like that. I guarantee. Nice. You see it in full metal jacket. You can see it in, um, uh, definitely 2001. You can see that. So he, he that's another trademark of his.
0: Right? Exactly. And what you mentioned also, that is one of his most famous trademarks. It's called, as I read in TV tropes, the Kubrick stare. It's when the camera zooms in on a character staring at the audience in a very ominous, menacing stare. It basically shows how they've gone off the deep end. It symbolizes their mental state deteriorating. It's used many times in The Shining with the shots of Jack staring into nothingness, it really tells the audience how he is has gone off the deep end. And even then, even to show just how much of a master Kubrick is in visual storytelling, many of the scenes in his films don't even require music, even. And like can- in 2001, A Space Odyssey, the entire spacewalk, when Dr. Poole is getting out of the pod, there is no music at all. Instead, we hear the sounds of heavy breathing and ambience of compressed air. It really gives the scene a lot of realism because when we're doing stuff, we don't expect to hear music in the background. We are we're not watching a scene. We're in the scene. We are entering into the world that Kubrick has crafted.
1: Yeah, everything he, Even music is always, like I said, he's involved in every set of production, every stage of it. So from the music to the cinematography, set design, everything has a purpose. And that's how, you know, that helped his, his film. And in that particular moment, as you said, it hides the tension, doesn't it? When you don't have any music, you just hear heavy breathing because it puts you into like the perspective of that character. Because that's what he's experiencing. He's hearing heavy breathing. I mean, you know, because that that can signify like he's vulnerable. Because you know he's in space, and you know he has to get to, uh, uh, to he has his mission. Or whatever it's, it's not easy. So so yeah, it's just Kubrick is very much uh, a master at that and maintaining consistency in his in his vision. But making sure it serves the story and the audience.
0: It helps the audience. It does, yeah. In fact, like we mentioned before in our private chat, the it's not just done for the sake of beauty. Every single shot in the film, from the largest wide shot to the extreme close-up, it every single shot, no matter how long it is, it's like its very own scene. It's not being put to waste. And Another pattern I notice in Kubrick's films is that most of the pivotal game-changing scenes in his films usually take place in a bathroom, which is the place where we can be at our most private. And for warnings, further spoilers ahead, like for a few examples, the entire Here's Johnny sequence takes place in a bathroom in The Shining and in Dr. Strangelove. The tur- the the turning point of the film happens when the general General Ripper commits suicide in a bathroom, no less. Oh, in which film? Uh, Doctor Strangelove.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah I didn't realize that. I didn't pick up on that. But yeah, it's always. I guess I can add to like the hilarious aspect, like of all things that the dramatic things that happens in a bathroom, right? <laughs> so, but I think he does that. Maybe he just likes doing that or that's how, Because you know, a lot of artists or filmmakers and writers, they have certain tropes that, that they like to do a lot that they, you know. So maybe he likes doing that. But but I think with him, I think he's just trying to make, especially with Dr. Strangelove, how it's a black comedy. I think he purposely did that to make it, you know, very uh, surprising and kind of sad that it happened at
0: Bathroom. It is. Yeah. <laughs> of all places. It is, yeah. And of course kubrick was not just controversial as a filmmaker but also as a a person as well because if you're working on a kubrick film expect a lot of long stressful tedious days because as we mentioned kubrick is the epitome of perfectionism he is a consummate filmmaker he always wants he's very he's like a a drill sergeant basically but in terms of in the filmmaker world like he has this tendency to demand multiple takes in his films especially in The Shining with that whole staircase scene it took 127 takes to film and he'd even go the extra mile by antagonizing his own actors in fact when I watch some of Kubrick's films, sometimes I wonder, like in all of the dangerous scenes, how many takes did it require to make that shot? Because it must have been very distressing for the actors.
1: I mean, yeah, that happened to Shelley Duvall in um, in The Shining. She, I think, that's part of the reason she left acting, or you know, because she just and yeah, Kubrick just treated her really bad. But I think, but I think for Kubrick, he did that to kind of help her performance. I don't get the sense that he was a uh, misogynist or he was just, cause you know, people complain that her character wasn't really impactful in the film. She was kind of like a weak, weak female character, but I mean, she, she did hold her own in the end, but I think Kubrick did that to kind of help her performance because, you know, people argue about people are were mad at him for several things he did in his films, like when he wanted multiple takes, but it's all about him getting the best version of what he wants to put on screen, and making sure the performances are just as good as well. And if that means you have to be hard on people, then that, then he, that's what he do. But what I would say is that if, I think nowadays that's kind of you can't really do that now. You know, I mean, you kind of have to just allow people to do their best, but still not be too hard on them. But it does happen when I mean it's not just him. Other some other directors do that too. I mean, David Fincher does it. I think Matt Reeves did it on the new Batman film. So it's a it's a common personality thing. But I don't think for the majority it's a big problem because I think majority of directors will, will not do what Kubrick did. But Kubrick was just that perfectionist in that regard.
0: Was yeah, and yeah. Now that we have discussed this, I think. It's time now we take a dive deep into his films. We're going to go over. We're going to analyze the living hell out of each of his films, all the way from Fear and Desire to Eyes Wide Shut. So let's get started. And also on the record, warning, massive spoilers ahead. If you haven't watched any of his films and me and Emmanuel haven't yet seen Killer's Kiss, but we will sometime in the future. And I think we can agree, even if we miss out one film, we got it all covered. So
1: yeah, we got it covered, right?
0: To start off, Fear and Desire. Now, Fear and Desire. You'd be forgiven if you place this last on your top ten or ranking of your favorite Stanley Kubrick films, because Fear and Desire. This is probably out of all of Kubrick's films, this is his most un-Kubrick-ish, if you know what I mean, because it doesn't quite have the same style, aesthetic, or any of the trademarks that he would have later down the line. But then again, that's forgiven, given how he was 25 years old when he made this film. He was more or less refined. He had yet to learn a lot about what it means to be a filmmaker, all tour.
1: Yeah, if you look, it's a great film. It's not terrible, but... It's very crude. Like, it's very, the editing is very, like, it's, you could tell, like, maybe a, a, a student filmmaker did it. I mean, it's, um, the cuts are kind of jagged, not really mesh well, and the editing is kind of off. And, and there's a lot of, like, interesting, like, uh, like, uh, shots of close up shots. Cause you, I think you know of the, uh, I think it's called the Klushnikov effect, where like you look at a certain person, then you look at an object, and then it goes back to that person's reaction. That's kind of what um, Kubrick was doing, especially with the woman, and the soldier that was uh, kidnapped or held the held the woman hostage, and um, so that was cool. But it's very much uh, it's, it was all this time and back in those days, but it was overall the film you could tell it was very crude. Like Kubrick was just figuring out his style. And then again, I mean he did revisit this topic of, you know, war and how humans can just basically abandon all morality when it happens. But uh but yeah, overall it's just very it's a very crude film. It's not really well meshed together. And he and over time he just downplays the film. He does not like what he did.
0: Right. It's true. And this is one I I don't I I don't I neither love nor hate the film because the quality does look outdated for especially for today. But let's cut. I'm willing to cut him some slack, of course, given how he was young and inexperienced at the time. And also, you're right, it did carry out one of his major themes in his films the whole war is hell motif, which he would carry on in his later films like Palace of Glory, uh, Dr. Strangelove, and Full Metal Jacket. And then again, so many of the g- many great directors, their first films, they usually start when they're young, and they are more, very less refined, but then they get better and better as they as they go along. So, and yeah, Kubrick, he really did hate this movie, really. He tried to withdraw it from release but despite the his dislike for the film thankfully he never let that stop him as history has shown us because the next films he made they were phenomenal and since we haven't watched killer's kiss we'll skip that one and get to the killing which i feel this is the film that really put kubrick on the the map really what really made him well known at the time not quite there yet but starting to
1: Oh, yeah, this was a, this was, I mean, I've seen a lot of noir films and it does have a lot of the tropes, but this is, arguably, this is one of the best noir films I've ever done. Yes, at the time, back in the 50s, that was common, a lot of those type of movies. But in terms of, you could tell Kubrick really dived into the genre and it was a great film. I mean, it was a huge step up from Fear and Desire. Uh, it still was of his time. So a lot of the story choices were, he was hampered by, uh, there was a Hollywood code back then where um, certain things had to happen in the film, when, and particularly with crime films. Like there's a reason the ending was that way because you can't, and Hollywood was in, was in the, of the mind of, they didn't want to um, glorify bad behavior. And it was very much uh, the church was very active, you know, not in the fifties, like majority of Americans are Christian. So Hollywood was, you know, trying not to step over toes. So that's why the film had that ending. But aside from that, it was great filmmaking. It was great storytelling. Um, All the characters I care for, they're all fleshed out characters. Uh, And it is kind of the heist genre. It is kind of the heist film. You know, the one last job before the guy gets out forever and he has to assemble all his team. But it's interesting that Kubrick did that within a film noir aspect. So... Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a
0: really good film. I agree. It's probably one of his most underrated films, really. In fact, most of his earlier films can be deemed underrated. But in today's time, a heist movie, you know, a the one less job, a film about a group of uh, crooked people robbing a place, a bank, or in this case, a rodeo, doesn't seem like anything new or dreadfully original nowadays. But Kubrick added a new spin to it with his with nonlinear storytelling which would later be copied down the line by other directors like Christopher Nolan and especially Quentin Tarantino like they owe this type of storytelling to Stanley Kubrick if it wasn't for the killing
1: yeah Tarantino's gone Tarantino's gone on the record as saying the killing was a huge influence on *Reservoir dogs like a very huge influence and that's kind of why I checked the film out. I'm like, wow, I really like Reservoir Dogs. I gotta check this film out. And a few months ago, just to fill out my Kubrick filmography, because earlier we were supposed to do the episode earlier this year, but we weren't able to. But, but yeah, I watched it, and yeah, it was it was amazing. I I was I watched it in my house. I watched it on the Xfinity, so on cable. I watched it for free, and it was amazing. The opening shot that whole long shot of the whole racetrack was amazing. Uh, draws you in and then um, the use of shadows and how he does his exterior shots and, you know, especially when the one that's at the racetrack, but then also when the group is getting together, like how he frames the shots and how he, you know, you see the interplay and the interdynamics. It's just really well done. It's it's amazing.
0: Was Yeah. And by the end of it, despite all of the sacrifices and everything they lost, it all turned out to be for nothing in the end because the luggage with the money opened up at the worst possible time. And I love that like this is one of Kubrick's. Other trademarks, too, because most Hollywood films were usually very idealistic as well. We know who the good guys and the bad guys are. The bad guys die at the end and no one gets hurt. But here there are actual stakes, actual consequences. Our characters are very morally gray, distorted. And this one has a straight up downer ending as well, which is one of the trademarks of a Kubrick film, really, which was very... Unusual and very unheard of at the time. Yeah, I mean it's
1: um well, well this is it's a Kubrick thing too because Kubrick is always comment, he's always critiquing human folly, like human humans. I wouldn't say sin, but like human um, bad behavior, and you can feel for him because you want him, you kind of want him to get the money. Like, I mean, he chose who was kind of big at the time a little bit. You also see him, uh, he also pops up in uh, Dr. Strangelove, a great actor. And he's, he has like this every everyman aspect to him, you know? Like he's a criminal, but you can kind of see where he's coming from. So you, the movie is really his journey, his, his struggle. And you, you're kind of rooting for him at the end, right? Like, oh, he's a one last job. He just wanted to be with his girlfriend and they're about to get off, they're about to ride into the sunset or whatever, go on the plane. But it's like, it's that old, it's that old, uh, that old idiom, you know, the old saying, no, no bad deed goes unpunished. Right. Mm-hmm. So he he lost all the money because, and even he, he, even he gave up, he was like, okay, just uh, just arrest me, you know, like whatever. Mm-hmm. And I love how Kubrick ended this, the the film with the two officers coming up to him. And, you know, you can, you can end it there because you already know what's going to happen next. So that was a great uh, fate of black.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's done for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, what's the difference? Yeah, and and up next, we're we got Paths of Glory, which would be the first in what I consider to be Kubrick's anti-war pentalogy. Pent- pent- t- tetralogy. <laughs> well, Paths of Glory it is one that also. It's also the first out of two films in which Kubrick would collaborate with the late Kirk Douglas, father of Michael Douglas. And this one was, man, I really enjoyed this one. It still looks good, even after more than 60 years later. And Paths of Glory, it really shows one of the trademarks of Kubrick's films. The war is hell, because as I mentioned to you before, in war, there are no such thing as winners or losers because you lose at the end. If you win, you lose. And if you lose, you lose. Cause even if you make it out of the war, you will end up damaged psychologically and mentally, like barely recognizable to what you were before you signed up for the war.
1: Yeah. But the other thing too, that Cooper does so well, like I said, is that, you know, he, he attacks the institution, the hierarchy in the war. And so, yeah, these, these soldiers, you know, but it wasn't the soldiers' fault. It was the fault of the general of, uh, the, the, I forgot his name, um, played by, um, I think Alfonso M- 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 Macau. And, uh, yeah, so it just, it's just, a, it's the consequences of bad authority. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the soldiers, yeah, they may have been cowards or, but they, they were just following their orders, but they didn't want to follow through with the order because it was they didn't want to die, because it was a bad order. But the general was so committed to looking good, like oh, I've, I've captured this section of what we need to do, and he was only caring on his his uh his image, his success. And so it's just interesting that dynamic of that, and you can see it in other kind of in other Kubrick films too, how there's this sense of upper management being to blame yeah you have people on the bottom that carry out the orders but it's always upper management it's always in in that hierarchy of the institution he's talking about and um it's just a great canvas for a story and doing dealing that with war so so yeah it's it was a great uh it was a great insight into the into that war right And, and i think i told you that uh in america they didn't really do that but I looked it up a few days ago. The French army did, did carry out executions for Cowardice. But um, so that, that film was kind of based on true events. But it's, uh, it was a great story choice, a great story for Kubrick to comment on the aspects of, you know, military, like who's really to blame at times. And it's not, even, it's, it's not the soldiers. It's the people that are giving the
0: orders, basically. Right, exactly how he plays on that role of scapegoating as well, how at the end of the day, when some leaders, they were willing to do anything to protect their own ass, really to save their own reputation, even if that's at the cost of their own men, innocent lives and Also, I find it interesting how, despite being a war movie, it doesn't play by any of the conventions we're used to seeing in a typical war movie like guns blazing, gory violence. In fact, as I mentioned to you, it's a war movie where the one war scene, the one action scene is saved just for the first act of the movie, like the first 20 minutes or so, while the rest of the movie is more about saving the lives of these men. It's all about the politics, the everything that happens behind the scenes. I find that really interesting because it doesn't feel like an archetypal war movie. Like the real war isn't just with guns and bayonets. It's one about words and the political game. I feel that's what the true war is, the true path of glory.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of, it's a very underrated film. I mean, I've seen it, I have seen it in, um, in people's lists, like people that are like huge fan film, people like us. It's on, it's probably near the top sometimes or near the like top 20 or at least it's a very underrated film, but stylistically, it's very, it's completely, it completely fulfills Kubrick's vision. Like of him critiquing, you know, the people in power in the sense of the generals against the soldiers. So if you look at how the soldiers perspective, especially with, uh, Kirk Douglas character, there's a lot of close, like, like claustrophobic close shots, whenever they're interacting in the trenches and things like that. So that kind of draws the audience into their perspective. You know, there's dirt everywhere. It's in black and white, but that accentuates, like, the dirtiness and how uh, you can't really see anything and how cramped it can be. But juxtaposed against that is, like, all these wide shots of the generals and their nice mansions. And, like, you can see everything and, like, how opulent it is and how well off they are. You know, that is like they're so detached from, you know, the harshness of what the soldiers are going through. Which right. is which is terrible, and so but that helps Kubrick's message of you know critiquing the people. In that sense, the French generals that didn't really give a shit about, didn't really care about um, the soldiers.
0: Right, exactly, yeah. and I've also read that Paths of Glory for 1956 it was banned in France because of its negative portrayal of the the French military, how they're willing to. You know execute these men simply for refusing to fight. it's also a deconstruction of what is uh of masculinity true uh manliness as well, given how the 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 officers there were thinking more with their dicks rather than with their heads
1: yeah, and then another good example I think I talked to you about some days ago was maybe a week ago was um the general gaz I keep forgetting his name but Remember when he slapped or he hit the, uh, the soldier that was shell shocked? Mm -hmm. It was a sign. It was, that was, that's, um, there's this phrase in psychology called projection where you see something in yourself and somebody else that you don't like and you start letting you lash out. So it's kind of like the general in that aspect was like, he felt the guy was emasculated. So he felt like he didn't want to feel like, you know, essentially like a woman or like he's not manly enough. So that's why I told the guy to buck up, you know, like stop acting like that. Because, you know, he it's it's something that he's dealing with himself. You know, that's why people project. That's why people do that, lash out at other people because there's something inside they're they're wrestling with. Right. So that just adds depth in how messed up this that guy, guy was. I mean, it was all about his image. It was all about him being, you know, this beacon of masculinity of how he's he's the best at what he does. But really, he's just a con man and he's just a self selfish con artist. You know, like he just cares about what it can what benefits him.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and also, um, yeah, this is also one of Kirk Douglas's best performances, really, as uh, the Colonel, Colonel Dax. He is he's like the, the a reasonable authority figure. He is the one good apple in a basket full of rotten apples in the French military system. And even after he receives a, gets a promotion to be at the top of the game, he still refuses. Like That tells us everything we need to know about him, that he's a man of, of code, of honor, trying, trying to save these four young men who are basically being lined up to, for execution, almost like pigs for slaughter.
1: Yeah, it's this whole, and you can kind of see it, not to get ahead of myself, but you can kind of see it in um, Eyes Wide, which has a similar thing of a guy, a normal guy with a code, with morality, but he's enticed into, like, upper class. Like, you can get promoted into this, or you can join us, and then you see how, like, you you start losing senses of, like, just basic human morality. It's all about, because the... The guy that gave him, wanted to give him the promotion was just about, you know, like your promotion will get you higher up on the, on the social chain or the higher up on the political chain. But at the same time, you, you, you start losing your moral code. You start losing your sense of, you know, relating to people, like being honest, being a good person, basically. And so with that. And the other thing too is that Dax was a soldier. Dax, he's. He spends a lot of time with these soldiers, so of course he's gonna he's gonna si- take sides with them, right? And still have that code because the military it's all about you got to help your 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 fellow soldier. It's, you know, that's always the military's about every branch, right? Whether it's army, navy, air force, marines, it's all about um, saving your fellow s- soldier. And so he didn't want to lose sight of that. He didn't want to become one of these people on the top that just care about themselves and only really, and just see the soldiers as cattle or soldiers as instruments to help them, basically.
0: Right. Very admirable character, yeah. And and luckily, Kirk Douglas would later partner up with Kubrick for the second and last time with Spartacus. Now, I I, I just love this movie. I, I had the pleasure of watching it on Netflix. I spent so much time looking for this film until it just came to me on Netflix. And my god, this is such a beautiful, powerful film. This is the definition of an epic film. And I can see it influence other films down the line, such as Gladiator and Braveheart. And I believe you mentioned before that Spartacus was the film that ended the, Holy, the era of the Hollywood blacklisting.
1: Yeah, that was a uh, that film was very much a sign of his time because people, I mean, since then, you know, film teachers and uh, other people have associated the whole uh, Spartacus being a revolutionary and things like that, and slaves to like the period in the 1950s uh, 1960s around the time about with the uh, red scare and with the um what the Hollywood I think it's the Hollywood 10 or the, the like these or these group of filmmakers that were blacklisted, basically, because they were suspected of having communist ties, things like that. And so people think that a lot of people have associated when, um, at the end when everybody says, I'm Spartacus, and they're trying to save Spartacus, they associate that with Trumbo and like the other people that were trying to save each other when they were blacklisted. So that's interesting. But Spartacus was really... Kirk Douglas, like he likes playing those type of characters, those characters that are highly moral, good, great leaders. And Spartacus was just a story of a story of freedom, a story of, again, it's kind of an institutional thing too. It's the whole idea of these people rising up against an oppressive uh, regime or oppressive empire, and in this case, it would be the Roman Empire, which was a big, big oppressive. Um, regime um so that was just a great canvas of story for kubrick to play with and uh i think it's even he yes, he did have he didn't have complete control over that film but it's still i mean my dad watched it my dad he's a big fan of older films and he watched that when he was younger and and he, he reviewed he really likes that film so that's just a sign of spartacus being timeless like a lot of people can look back on it fondly, and it still holds up. It's still a great film. Uh yeah, it's
0: it's it's really good. It is. I bet it must have been one of the most expensive films ever made as well, given the number of extras and the the epic battle scenes, plus the production design, which they put into a whole amount of detail to make sure it emulates how the Roman Empire was during that time, plus the costume design. Everything about the backdrops, even. It's just, wow, a testament to how much Kubrick is dedicated to his own craft. And I've also heard Kirk Douglas helped produce the film and at the same time end the whole Hollywood blacklisting era. And I heard at some point he and Kubrick had a bit of a falling out because of that, I assume. Uh, Isn't it because they... Kirk yeah, Douglas it's
1: just it's those little, it's just little things that 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 became bigger things, you know. Like, you know, so you know, Kubrick is hard on, on actors. That's one aspect. Uh, that was pretty much. I'm pretty sure that was one factor in it. And then the other two is Kubrick was very much because you got to remember, Kirk Douglas got Dalton Kubo, Dalton Trubo, Trumbo to write the film at a time when Trumbo couldn't get any work because he was blacklisted. You had to, like, whenever he write a film, he had to use a different name. So Kirk Douglas specifically got Trumbo on there. And there was a dispute about credit, like screenplay credit. And apparently Kubrick was very eager to say he wrote the film, when really he didn't. It was Trumbo who wrote it. And so Kirk Douglas had to be the one to, like, Basically forced Universal or I'm um, not Universal, um Warner Brothers or the studio that was the film was made for, to to put Trumbull's name on there, and that's kind of what started, you know, the, the end of the blacklist too a little bit. That's what set the ball rolling down the blacklist. So there were other factors, but there were the two main things I think were uh, Kirk Douglas didn't want to work with Kubrick anymore.
0: Huh. Well, that explains everything. So, and also I heard some parts got got banned in some countries as well because of some bisexual undertones, especially from the the main that villain. I didn't know
1: when you, when you told me that. That was interesting. So you said that when Cassius, or, um yeah, I think it's Cassius, right? Um, Crassus, the main, said, the main villain. Crassus, Crassus. When he said uh, something about a snake or something, or?
0: Um, oysters and snails.
1: <laughs> oysters and snails. Yeah, there was, well... There's, I mean, I mean, everybody knows this. The Romans were very much, there were guys banging guys. There were, you know, guys banging girls. They're all over the sun. So, and if you look at, um, not to get too crude, I'm sorry if I got too crude on your podcast, but um, if you look at certain um, interactions between Crassus and uh, Caesar, there was a huge, there was a huge homoerotic undertone for sure. The way Crassus was, was, and the way that, and I think, and I'm pretty sure Kubrick did this on purpose because he chose a younger actor to play Caesar. I think that actor at the time wasn't that big at the time. He was, he was, his career was going, but not that big. And so if you look at how he, Caesar in the shots, he looked very much like this bastion of Roman masculinity, you know, what Romans should look like. And Crassus, you can tell how Crassus interacted with him. Crassus was, you know, kind of a mentor to him, but there was always like this, you know, homoerotic undertone that I got from it in their interactions. So I can see why people
0: saw that. Wise, well, yeah, and and then there's the fact he at towards the climax, he was interested in Spartacus' wife, Varinia. And at the same time, this is juxtaposed earlier in the film where he seems to be very get very too close for comfort with his serving boy Antoninus, with how he literally has the man look at him while he's taking a bath. And it's all because I feel it's pretty much pretty much um, unheard of or taboo, I'm guessing, for sexuality to be shown in, in that time for 1960, I feel, because that kind of behavior oh, sure. would not be accepted in today's time
1: yeah back then like even even like 10 years before you wouldn't do that but kubrick was always kubrick was always that guy pushing down below a little bit and but then again it reflected the times like uh, like i said earlier like like i just said you know they're all romans a lot of those guys you know yeah they're banging girls but they also had you know boy lovers and like guys and so it just happened so it's accurate to the romans at the time and uh so, yeah
0: was and even though people tend to associate spartacus with its big action scenes and battle scenes i i also enjoyed the the little moments when they cut to the action like the dialogue the character character driven story and even the politics going on in the senate it it's very reminisc- reminiscent of a game of thrones basically with the whole court politics and i really appreciate that stuff and this is Kubrick's longest film, actually, with three hours and seventeen minutes. And throughout the whole thing, I never felt it was going on for too long or dragging. I actually appreciated every single moment of it. This is actually one of my, in my top six of Kubrick's favorite films. Really, it's it's ingenious. Really, it's incredible.
1: It's kind of high on my list. It's not at the top, but it's high on my list. I wouldn't say I would say more than in the middle, but it's uh. Yeah, Kubrick was really good. You could tell that he wanted to do a movie of this scale. I mean, Kirk Douglas got him to do it, and he jumped at the opportunity. But like I said, he didn't have a lot of creative control. But despite all that, he was still able to make a really great film. Uh, Yeah, it's a great epic. Um, There's only like a few films that can like rival it in terms of that genre. You kinda of would have to look at like earlier films, like maybe the fall of the Roman Empire would be a good a good example with um Alec Guinness would might be maybe able to rival it. That's not a bad film. Or a film like um uh I can't think of it, but there are other films at the time. There's yeah, Italian directors of I think Fellini did a epic at some point. So so yeah, it's just um it's a film that that's Very that holds up and it's hard to rival. There are some rivals, but I don't think recent films have kind of dethroned it. You know, like have gotten to the scale of it. Maybe Braveheart, Mel Gibson's Braveheart, but other than that, Gladiator came close. But I think I think it's still a hard hard film to
0: beat. I I might have to agree with you on that one. Yeah, yeah. And later, two years later, Kubrick would make in another comeback with Lolita. And that's something else I want to mention, how Kubrick is very versatile because he's mostly known for doing war movies, but he's also done comedy, romance, science fiction and horror. And Lolita would have to be his very first attempt at romance, something different apart from war. Now, let me just say, like many of his films, Lolita a film about an old a may december romance an older man infatuated with a younger nymph that kind of story would not sit well with audiences today i bet they would blacklist it or even agree to boycott the movie you know for its depictions of you know um perceived pedophilia or or even a may december romance
1: yeah even at the time people were like oh people were i think warner brothers was the studio behind it i could be wrong but i think it was warner brothers but yeah it, they were kind of uneasy about it they're it like this is because that was during the early 60s just before the sexual revolution you know where everything changed and people were like whatever but before then they're like oh you can't you gotta that's why um he had to make edits he had to like yeah, he wrote the script and everything and directed it, but he had to like carefully do. That's why there's one scene where there's a fade to black where, uh, it's heavily implied that Lolita and Humbert had sex, but it's a fade to black. So you don't see it because right. Kubrick had Kubrick, Kubrick. No, he couldn't, he couldn't go too far with it. And as she said, if he had known, he probably would have done a different film if he known how stressful and how controversial it would be uh but because but the, for some for for some reason the story appealed to him that's why he made it uh and it has a lot of messages about romance and like older guys and younger women and how and if you watch the film and i love this is why this is one of my favorite films high, high on my list there's a power dynamic between humbert and lolita and lolita But if you watch the whole film and go to the end, the power dynamic switches. Lolita's now the one that's in control, have her own life. And Humbert is the one that's basically falling all over whose whose life's unraveled at that point. And I love that. And I love how well done that was. Because you think, oh, Lolita, she's just this girl that loves him, and this and that. But then you find out that Different circumstances were around it, and she basically matured and became her own person, whereas Humper just devolved into, you know, a guy that just lost everything, and, he, and that's kind of why he killed Quietly because he had nothing else to do. But then what's, what's great about the film is that if you look at a lot of Kubrick's films, there's always a character and his shadow, a character that's the extreme of the negative of the, of the main character. So in this case, it was Humbert and Quietly. Humbert was more of the, you know, he, he was well, he was infatuated with Lolita, but he was more, like, not as creepy about it, not as nefarious. Whereas Quietly, played by Peter Sellers, who was funny as heck in this movie, he was so funny, but he represents the the dark side of Humbert. Like, he's this guy, because both of the guys are, Lolita is attracted to, but they're both on the polar sides of morality in a way. Right. And, um, so it kind of makes sense why it's kind of like so. At the end, when uh, when Humbert kills him, he's basically killing his shadow self, but it's still kind of like a sense of revenge because he has nothing else to do at that point. So. Right. But yeah, that's a great film.
0: Man. Like that's what you mentioned. Also, I love how Kubrick does this with his characters and films. How his films have very like sexual themes and imagery, and it symbolizes how his characters humans are flawed inherently aggressive and sexual and lolita is uh i see as two sides the story of both lolita and and humbert with lolita being more of a coming of age story and humbert being more about um basically him taking out his sexual frustrations on others like he's too it's It's almost reminiscent a depiction of domestic abuse, basically, like, you know, uh, if I can have you, no one else can. Like Humbert and uh, Charlotte, Lolita's mother, are almost like two sides of the same coin because they're both very possessive of Lolita, very clingy on her like they own her, like she's their property. And Lolita's journey is one of breaking free of that leash, as you said, being her own person. And by the end, she she gets it, which makes it it's a, more of a happy ending for Lolita and more of a downer for Humbert and also I noticed how the book is actually way more explicit and sexual, which is why Kubrick had to tone down several of the scenes from the novel.
1: Yeah, yeah, like there is, yeah, it's, he, he don't, he, one major difference is that he expanded uh, Peter Scheller's character and in, in the book he's not as expanded. But I guess that's because, you know, Kubrick was really, he really liked Sellers; they had a great relationship, so he expanded his role. But yeah, the there was points where, because the book you go into his thought process, Humper's thought process, and it's very much, very sexual and very selfish, like very maniacal, like maniacal, because he's like, he he's obsessive with these young girls, like how he thinks about them. He calls them nymphs, uh, nymphs. You know, and it's like it's just weird that he has a specific name for them. It's just like. Yeah, it's just weird because he's always uh, thinking about them and like how he can acquire them. And then you find out like when he was younger, how that attraction started. And, um, but yeah, the book is very much explicit. I mean, in terms of sexual content and his thought process, which of course the film does a good job of doing that visually, but not as too explicit.
0: Thankfully, it spared us yeah. the details. Yeah. And later, two years later, we would get what is, I believe, one of your favorite corporate films. Dr. Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Now, this one is one I've always wanted to see because when I was in high school, which, by the way, I hated, one thing I really enjoyed was I found it interesting when I had to study about the Cold War. The Cold War was one of my favorite topics in history and one of my favorite wars to study about. It is, yeah, like full of espionage and two-faced characters. And this one, Dr. Strange Love, It's a very important film, even today, especially in today's political climate in the US. But we're not here to get political. We're here to talk about film. So Dr. Strangelove, for context, it was 1964. And that is what, and during that time, it was the aftermath of JFK's assassination and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And of course, the whole MAD, which is a mutually assured destruction there was paranoia everywhere in the us people were afraid of getting bombed like nuclear holocaust w- seemed inevitable and kubrick he turned a twist on it he turned something that we were scared of at the time into something that we should laugh at he took some a very serious topic and turned it into a comedic one it's it's genius really and it's just amazing. It's also a satire as well. In essence, one of the best satires ever about how the United States, they they just don't get it, really.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, the context is that, so when Kubrick did the film, he was really, it started because he did a lot of research. He read like 70, 80 books on nuclear theory and nuclear power and military games and all that aspect or mad, some aspect. And he just found that no one really knew what, what to expect. Like no one was really prepared for it. And so as he was writing the script, he just found a way where he had to make it, it became like a comedy to him. It just made him, he, I guess he wanted to go in the, at the venue of black comedy and, and he did it well. I mean, he got a great writer, Terry Southern, who, um, who knows like, cause a lot of, a lot of people in the government and the military are from Texas or from the South. So he was able to use Terry Southern's um, writing to kind of comment on how uh, it can be, you know, it's all about, you know, dick measuring contests, like well, how much of a man you are and all that stuff. But let's face it. A lot of military guys are like that. Like, I think I told you one time, they're very much trying to prove their, how manly or how, Impressive the their country is, especially in America, it happens a lot. Oh yeah, for sure. So, uh, so yeah, that was just a great uh, thing to poke fun at, you know. But in the context of, you know, war and like nuclear war and Holocaust and things like that,
0: it did. And also, oh, you go first. No, this is well done. It is, yeah, and and apart from that, also, it's not just the Cold War or nuclear warfare, but the film. It pokes fun at the very essence of republicanism, given how it pokes fun at Ronald Reagan, who was young at the time. And, and again, it even transcends to today's t- political climate in the U.S., especially given how Donald Trump, re- a Republican, was, has, was in the heat of controversy for having access to the nuclear codes, which again sparked that fear off the MAD aspect, you know, mutually, mutually assured destruction. Yeah,
1: and then, yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of guys in the military are Republican and more conservative for sure. Um, but it's just it's just an idea of having the bigger stick, you know. And I think, you know, it started with uh, Theodore Roosevelt and then it just carries on since then, especially when you're talking about the military. It's all about having the bigger bigger weapon, you know, and Tergensen, um Turgensen General, Turgensen, the guy that was acting crazy in the war room, he was based on a real guy, uh, Herman Kahn, I think he was a nuclear military scientist and uh, which I think Kubrick knew and consulted with and he, he just took that Kubrick was able to just take him and, you know, that whole idea of like a guy in the military from the South who's trying to prove his masculinity and things like that and poke fun at that. And and it's because that he was that's one of the things that Kubrick was critiquing, how like guys in the military, usually from the South and other areas, rural areas, they go there and they try to improve how much of a man they are. And then also with Doctor Strangelove with how he, he couldn't help himself but do the Nazi salute and then he had to he had to go back. <laughs> which is funny. What? <laughs> that just references, you know, Operation Paperclip where the U.S. recruited a lot of ex-Nazi German scientists, and there's this theory, a conspiracy theory, that now they've infiltrated the government and things like that. Mm-hmm. Since that time, and so there's a lot of fascists in government, but but in that particular element, Kubrick was just making fun of, you know, <laughs> which is brilliant because why, you know, the fact that we relied on these questionable scientists who probably had the same ideology ideology as Hitler, so. Yeah. It's just
0: funny, but it's also kind of messed up, right? Yeah. It sure is, yeah. And also it takes further the it exaggerates. It takes up to eleven the United States red scare, the fear of their homeland being turned into a sphere of influence for the Soviet Union. How their And their solution basically bomb the Soviet Union, which is, yeah, the military men at the war room, they are thinking more with their muscles and what's between their legs rather than using their own brains. Like notice, let's take a look at two characters in the film, the, the president and the uh, general uh, Ma- Mandrake, uh, I believe is his title. Because they are the only ones who use their heads. They're the only reasonable people in the film. And what do they have in common? Well, they're both physically weak. They don't have any of those, you know, masculine or macho traits. And literally the entire r- war room is being run by those idiots.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, that's why he was meant to be emasculated. Like, um, Peter Sellers, who played the president, he was meant to be this whole... Masculated character is kind of was poking fun at like how the, how that thing is set up because he's not, see, that adds to what, um, that adds to what, uh, Kubrick is trying to say. Because if you think about it, the executive branch is very much, it's very much a military apparatus. So yeah, the president at the top, but we all know the real power is, you know, those, those joint chiefs, those, those guys that advise the president. You know, and they're the ones that can convince him. Well, let's do this. Let's do that. And if you look at certain presidents, you can tell like they're not as they're not macho and things like that. So I think Kubrick is saying that the the power dynamic is is screwed up there. Like this, the president is supposed to be the like end all and be all, but he's at the mercy of his joint chiefs a lot of times. His <laughs> military advisors. Yeah, it just happens a lot, and it so is. Kubrick was brilliant at showing that how that institution basically emasculates the guy that's to, probably supposed to be the most masculine person. Right, yes. he's the leader. Yeah. <laughs> so it's brilliant,
0: yeah. brilliant. The bitter irony, yeah. And this also, this logic even goes further to real life world leaders because yes, the ones in charge, the president, the king, the queen, the prime minister, a position doesn't really give you true infinite power like there are different people running the show they're like almost like a. it's almost like a that's what power is basically it's like a a magician tricking the audience into looking the other way while he is making the rabbit disappear and another thing that we really have to say in Dr. Strangelove which I noticed thanks to you is that Most of the war stuff, like the nuclear warheads, the missiles, the planes, the weapons, they there's plenty of sexual phallic imagery in these in Doctor Strange love. Like the men at the war room, they the war is their lucky lady. It's their sexual obsession. They love starting war. They love war. Like war is glorious to them. And this is even evident with the um the the general uh, played by uh, George C. Scott. How his very first scene he is with a beautiful woman, and he doesn't seem very interested in in her. He's more interested after getting the phone call that he has to go to the the war room. It's war that arouses him, that makes his um his nuclear missile rise up.
1: Yeah, there's several things to talk about that. Well, number one is it's funny how like if you look at the back of Sterling Hayden's character, the guy that was going crazy, who's saying that, you know, their comments were putting flu- fluids uh, fluids in people's bodies or whatever. <laughs> it's just insane. But anyway, if you look at, like, the back of his office and, like, part of the, the uh, base, it says peace is our profession, but you know that they don't really believe that. And the other thing, too, is that um, if you look at some of the um, the... Uh, the uh, mad documents or some of the memos that were circulated at the time with the scientists. Uh, I think uh, Herman Kahn, who I mentioned before, when he looked at what the war games were and what people were doing, he's like, "Wow, you don't have a, a war thing, a war game. You have a orgasm, you know." So it's just like it's it just, so it's like he knew. Like even Kahn was saying, like, "Yeah, this is you guys are aroused, or you guys really want this thing really bad." And then the other thing too is that, um, there's a whole, uh, aspect of sexual, you know, elements. The whole idea of, you know, the end scene when the, that guy's riding the bomb at the end. I mean, that's, yeah, and then it cuts the explosion. I mean, and he's having fun doing it. So, yeah, it's very much a sexual connotation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, the money shot of him. Riding the missile, it's almost like uh, like an erection, the biggest erection in the history of mankind, basically, and yeah. he's having a hell of a time with it, and and the film ends when the whole world has been nuked to hell. With a song, A will Meet Again," which is basically a song of two lovers coming together, which again adds to the whole sexual uh, subtext behind the film. It's it's genius, really. I didn't notice all this this phallic imagery when I was first watching it. Even the first scene of the movie, where the the plane is getting fueled, it even it evokes imagery of. You know, of our gun entering into another woman's very own, uh, very own fuel tank.
1: Yeah, fuel tank. <laughs>
0: I don't cool. think we're talking we're about say
1: that fuel tank.
0: <laughs> and
1: Later, for your listeners to you know connect the
0: dots. Please, oh, <laughs> we're quite experts on the subject, really, and <laughs> but really. But then, this was. One of the best comedies, really. I feel, and I think, out of all of Kubrick's anti-war films, it's probably my my favorite as well. Because this is probably one of his best films ever. But his best, we'll get to right about now. Because four years later, we got the one two thousand one, a space odyssey. My god! Oh my fucking god! I have to. I have a lot to say about this. But two thousand one, it's probably. It's our favorite film by Stanley Kubrick, and it's really not hard to see why. This film was way, way ahead of its time, but I'll let you start this one. I am too excited to even see.
1: Oh, this is is my favorite. This is my favorite Kubrick film. Uh, I watched it back in May, and I, I mean, I watched it when I was younger, but I didn't really understand it. I watched like maybe 20 minutes of it, and I went back to saw the whole thing back in March, back in May, I'm sorry, end of May. And I loved it. It was, I'm a huge science science fiction fan, so I had to see, what, you know, what arguably is the best, greatest art, science fiction film of all time. I watched it and I loved every second of it. I loved the shots. I loved the, Im- the imagery, the editing, the transitions. Because there's so much I love about this film because it, mind you, this is the first film where it, Kubrick really went out of his way to be, be very scientifically accurate. So this is like the first scientifically accurate film in the science fiction genre. So because they were doing it in books, you know, that's why they have hard and soft science fiction. So soft science fiction just means there's more about the society and more about social themes. Hard science fiction is where there's more about the world building and there's a lot of science facts in it. And that's kind of why he probably got Arthur C. Clarke, who does a lot of hard science fiction um and i just love that i love that aspect of it uh and it was very much it predicted a lot of technological advances and things like that too it did. Uh, so yeah i love the i love the style what he did in the film a lot his filmmaking is great
0: in that film it did it was yeah definitely 2001 space odyssey is probably the most beautiful gorgeous film I've ever seen the shots of outer space, the production design of the inside the ships, it's the colors. It's all beautiful, very meticulous. And I just it annoys me when people say that this movie is just boring and nothing ever happens. But I wasn't bored at all watching 2001, really, even when it when it's focusing on the cinematography, the artistic value I never got turned off by it. In fact, I appreciated every single moment of it. It's a film that is rooted in ambiguity. There is no answer. Nothing is explained. And it works. It helps to tell the story. Because even today, we're in today's time of space discovery, trying to understand where and what is extraterrestrial life. We will never get definitive answers, really. It's all about the mystery and we don't want to know what the mystery is. And that's what makes the journey even more compelling.
1: Yeah, it's a film that, because I read, I read a few days ago that Kubrick really liked the, the idea of the film because he looked at it, he took inspiration from the Odyssey. So he, you know, that's a story, of this is going on a journey. You give it to the actor's wife and things like that. And he goes all these trials. But he, he saw like how, you can you can have that canvas of story space. like this can be our new um an odyssey or a new journey these type stories so because everybody was interested in space at the time it was came around the time of the space race right and yeah and then you know you have these because how well the film was because i mean Kubrick, i believe he did work with nasa to to shoot the film in terms of the cameras and so people are thinking oh he faked Kubrick faked the moon landing (laughs) and all that
0: stuff yeah and keep in mind this it also came out exactly one year before the moon landing too and my god this film is also as a film that's way ahead of its time apart from its prediction of space exploration and also introduced the fear of technology of artificial intelligence in HAL 9000 it really shows yeah. how our fear that AI could go sentient and self-aware turn against its masters as HAL has demonstrated to us it also i feel it's a message also of our very own hubris the very first scene of the film where a primate uh kills another primate by destroying by beating him to death with a bone it's very own creation and now it the tables have been turned. Now our own creations have turned against us because of our own hubris.
1: Yeah, the whole film is a is the evolution of humanity. You have the primates, then you have the advanced humans who are you know or not the advanced humans, but the modern humans that are in space, and then you have the creation of AI. So it's like three stages of humanity's um, involvement and in, and in, in maturity across time, and it's just a matter of. AI being, you know, the, it's always a common thing and common theme in some stories—the cre- creation, you know, going against the creator. Uh-huh. exactly. And, um, yeah, it was well done, and yeah, it's just amazing. Then you have the uh, symbolism of the monolith, and which is amazing, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's just great. It's amazing.
0: It is, yeah, and also. <laughs> just the it continues to amaze me because I watched it so many times and the cinematography it's just beautiful it's scenery porn taken up to 11 really and it uh, continues to impress me how all of this I keep in mind this was 1968 none of it was done in CGI it was all done practically using practical effects and set pieces and it still holds up even more than 50 years later. It's it's genius, really. It also shows that science fiction can be art in a time where science fiction at the time was had plenty of experimentation. And also keep in mind, this was exactly nine years before Star Wars. Yeah,
1: this film was very much a game changer. Um, yeah, great science fiction coming out at the time too, but it's like Kubrick was able to capture that, how great science fiction books were at the time and able to put that on screen. <laughs> and um, it's a visual feast. I mean, the whole scene of when um, when uh, Gary Lockett's character goes through that portal or whatever and you see all these images. It was just amazing. That's what science fiction is. You, you go to the unknown. You go to places that are just, that would... If, light up your imagination, you know? And and just a, a little uh, add, side note is that um, the end scene when he's in the, uh, he sees his older self, uh, it came out that um, Kubrick explained in the interview, like back in the 80s that, because, you know, Kubrick doesn't like to talk about his intentions, but I guess a reporter kind of cornered him and said, what did that mean? <laughs> and so he said, yeah, so if you think about it, he was in that zoo because he was taken when he went to that portal. He was taken by these godlike entities, and he was put in like the zoo, where he could see his life. Like he see, he could see himself aging, basically, in the same place. And um, and so, but after that, you know, he was able to come. He was able to become the star child. And Kubrick was trying to show how a lot of mythologies have a messiah character. Or a human becomes like a super being. And it's an interesting concept because you do see that in science fiction. Like um I know in uh Kurt Vonnegut's Strange Slaughterhouse Five, which is one of my favorite sci fi novels, there's this race called the Trav the Modorians, and they see in four dimensions or hyper dimensions or higher dimensions and they took the main character and this girl and they put them in the zoo to kinda of watch them. So it's a cool concept that that is in science fiction. So yeah, it's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. That's right, that ending has been a subject of debate for so many years, but one interpretation I like to stick by is has a more biblical concept, almost like when Jesus died on the cross but then came back on the third day and rose up to a higher plane of existence and is something more than a man now. I feel that's what the film is, how david has is no longer a man, but something more almost like like a god basically like a a divine being rebirth and it's even foreshadowed in the cinematography of the film i couldn't help but notice many of the film's shots have like circular uh, p- circular designs like the the entire scene where david is running ar- doing his workout running around the the spaceship and when the woman is walking upside down it basically Seth, that's what life is. Life is like a circle. Birth, death, and rebirth. An endless cycle. Kind of like the whole, like what Buddhists believe. Uh, In Buddhism, they believe that life is cyclical. That you are born and then are reborn into something else. Something more than a man.
1: Yeah, it's a cycle. It's the, um, uh, thing is they have this thing called the Dharma Chakra. Which is uh, has eight points. Um, the Dharma Chakra is very cyclical, and it's all about achieving Nirvana. You know, a state where you're one with. Um, I guess uh, I won't say Brahman, but like a, a, a higher being, something like that. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's very cyclical. It's very Kubrick does put out a lot in his in his imagery, and then. Again, he uses his trademark of the leading lines, where David is in the suit and he's in the hallway and it's a lot of depth where you can see where the eye goes to the center of the frame. He does that a lot in the film, which is amazing. Uh, But yeah, like to your point, yeah, there's a lot of cyclical imagery
0: for sure. And above all else, 2001 has proven that sometimes true art can be incomprehensible because the film lacks any dialogue. It's more on visual storytelling. Very little is explained. And at the same time, 2001 A Space Odyssey, you cannot consider yourself also a true cinephile if you haven't seen this film. I go to many top 100, top 300 best films of all time. 2001 is usually at number one, or if not close to the top. And some people might say that's a bit overrated or cliché, but I don't, because 2001, it really... It's, it's a perfect movie, I have to say. It's beautiful. It has something to say. And you can come up with your own interpretations, really. It's, I think this is Stanley Kubrick's best film. This is when he has finally reached his peak.
1: It's a masterpiece. It's his best film. It's everything about it. It just, like I said earlier, it takes what's great about science fiction. It kind of adds up all the elements and just puts it on screen. Like, everything that... Yeah, he worked with Arthur C. Clarke, and Arthur C. Clarke and his novels, for what I know about him, uh, he he did tackle a lot of that same elements of, you know, meeting space and meeting aliens and things like that. But it seems like Kubrick took every... Like, all the best elements from all the base, best science fiction at the time, put it together, and made it this film, basically. <laughs> That's what it seems like. Because... <laughs> Because that's what science fiction does. Science fiction can predict what happens, or and this film, like I said, it predicted a lot of technological advances. I mean, the touch screen, the uh, the video, the touch screen, but also the um the video chats where he where that one guy was talking to his daughter. That's Zoom now, right? That's what we're doing right now, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah.
0: You know? Well, yeah, and that you. And it still holds up as well. And none of it looks outdated. Just show someone 2001 A Space Odyssey right now. And it will still look like it came out four or even two years later. I mean, two years ago. It's it's genius, really. It's a masterpiece. It has earned its place also in the Library of Congress for films. It's this a magnum opus, really. it's a, yeah, it's a
1: masterpiece, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, very culturally significant, too. Uh, in terms of, yeah, at the time it was, you know, the space race. So Kubrick was able to take that backdrop, that historical context and for his story and, you know, make a story about a future, you know, where where we could go, where things could go for humanity. Yes, and, uh, Yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Well done.
0: Truly. And now we go on to his, probably his most controversial film yet. A Clockwork Orange, which, as you know, and our listeners know, we've had the pleasure of talking about this movie with our bo- other boy from Texas, Rico T. Allen, and great. It, which turns 50 years Thank you. And this was, and it's turns 50 years old also this year. And A Clockwork Orange, where can I begin with this? Because it's Yeah, it's probably his most controversial film for the time, also, because some people have dismissed it as torture porn or excessive, but I don't really see it that way. You know, it's the violence in the film, it has something to say as well. And the way I see it, it's more of a cautionary tale, really, about how what happens if society leaves these kind of people unchecked, how we have fallen to the lowest common denominator.
1: Yeah, it's it's a film that it's a it's a very much a film that talks about because I think that because with Kubrick, he always likes he reads a lot of books. So this book spoke to him about, you know, juvenile delinquency and because that was a problem. Like and and to keep keep in mind, this is during the 70s. So the 70s had a lot of edgy films too like edgier crime films, all that stuff. So that is again, that was the time that was right for it. But that was something he was worried about. I feel like Kubrick was worried about crime and what goes into be, people being criminals, and I think that book touched on that because it touched on juvenile delinquency. But it, t- it, you see, this this is why Kubrick is brilliant. He takes one subject, and but he looks at it from the whole macro level of institution of what what precipitates that behavior. And so, yeah, you, you know, Alex is a, not that sympathetic. But you see, as he interacts with like, the politicians and the uh, authorities and, and, uh, and the, also the, um, the anarchists or the people on the left, he becomes, Alex is really being used by both these groups. And he, his story of rehabilitation is not really a good one. You know, like, and it's all about because you think about it. It's really talking about the criminal justice system. You know how it's really hasn't really truly rehabilitated people. No, it's kind of very cyclical. Like you go in one way and you come out another way, no. or you come out the same, basically, or even worse sometimes.
0: Right. <laughs> it speaks of the the futility of therapy as well. And another point I want to mention as well. Another trademark of, Kubrick, trademark of Kubrick's is that he he's really good at deconstructing certain character archetypes. In this case, Alex is a deconstruction of the sociopath, the juvenile delinquent. He's He hates, he's going against the laws, he has lack of empathy, takes pleasure in causing violence to other people. But those traits, they alienate him from society and... Without those traits, Alex is, is weak. He's a punching bag for everyone he meets. And I love how the movie isn't asking us to root for Alex, or even, it, it. we understand him, but it's not asking us to sympathize with him, per se. In fact, Alex was more sympathetic in the novel, and much like another author that Kubrick adapted, Alex Burgess, the author, he... Disliked the film adaptation because he felt Kubrick missed the point of the film, which is redemption. Because Alex actually gets cured at the end of the novel, but Kubrick changed it so he goes back to his old habits. Because he felt it doesn't feel right with the story. He wanted to show that evil cannot really be cured.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like Burgess was just trying to say, like, you can't. In order to be good or evil, it has to be your choice. You shouldn't be forced into becoming good or evil. or, And he didn't like how... Burgers was just commenting on how the... Because you got to remember, like... I mean, it's kind of obvious now. It's heavily implied in the film that this is a communist society that's just became so decadent. And so uh, you could see how, like, communism... This is kind of hard to, to say, but it seemed like in the film, communism didn't work. So, and that led to the rise of this uh, conservative politician, the mayor, I mean, the, uh, the minister, I'm sorry, the minister. But then again, he's trying to rehabilitate these people and it's just not working. But the point is, is that Merges is just trying to show how you can't, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't force somebody to conform or it should be their choice and what they want to do in life. Right. And the ludovico technique just wasn't it's another yeah it's presented as oh we're helping criminals become reformed look at how good we are we're helping society from a government standpoint but no it's really it's really a
0: weapon it's really them control it's another basically mind control mm-hmm. it's
1: basically mind control and that's or course yeah and kubrick was very he was very aware of cuz he was he was critiquing both sides he's critiquing fascism and he's critiquing like liberal liberalism or communism and how they can both go in bad directions and how at the end of the day it's about power it's about and how for me what i got from the film is that we have to be very scared of how the government operates like they have a lot of power and they may not have our best interests at heart as a, as a citizenry, citizenry or a
0: society. Right, exactly. And that's where the title of the film comes into play. A Clockwork Orange, which symbolizes how something human, something organic, is being turned into something mechanical, which in this case is the subject of free will. Another thing that really made the film stand out is its use of a trope called soundtrack dissonance. It's when the soundtrack doesn't fit with the mood or the tone of the scene. This is especially the case with the singing in the rain, which is played when Alex and his drugs are beating and raping a woman. It It's really genius. It ju- It juxtaposes with the crimes that are being committed. It's almost like the music is what Alex is feeling. It's like we are in this psychopath's mind and imagining what he is thinking at the moment and what we're seeing and thinking is not a very pleasant sight.
1: Yeah, because, you know, you're seeing it from Alex's perspective. He's, you know, he's obviously on hands. He's obviously morally vapid. You know, he's just, oh, I'm doing this for fun for fun. Like seeing it in the rain, this is fun for me. And then you look at like even the opening shot when it's just brilliant, this whole film is brilliant. The opening shot of when uh they're beating basically they're beating the old man. And he again, Alex is very playful. He's oh this is fun. This is you know, we're beating this old guy, you know, he's a he's a cripple, he he's, he's nothing. And then you go back later and then I love how Kubrick is giving like a bird's eye view when the Alex gang and they're fighting the other gang, and it's a wide angle shot. He's just basically showing you. It's basically like a God's perspective of like just seeing humanity. It's just seeing inhumanity of how it's like you're looking at animals. You know, it's like, it's like you're looking at people that have no sense of morality. They're just given into their baser instincts, and uh, then you. So my point is, is that Alex is very much—he's a symptom of that society. If you think about it too, because that society is very decadent. You see the naked women on the, the naked bodies on the walls. You see the the women with breasts out and milk coming out. You know, it's kind of like see again. It goes again to that communist critique a little bit, where or socialist critique, where you know the, you follow that ideology or things and then it leads to that it can potentially lead to that where everything's, crime is very desensitized and oh, but then but then that's, you see, it it, it promotes the rise of this um, conservative minister to like, oh, I'm going to do everything in my power to curb this and I don't care if it about my dictator, basically so, yeah it's just, it's just well, great film, man, great film.
0: Right exactly, yeah. Um... And then also with the whole subject, too, it's, it's one of Malcolm McDowell's best performances as well. It helps, too, that he is on good terms with Kubrick as well. And Kubrick allowed McDowell to improvise several of his scenes. And honestly, I didn't find any of the violence like very shocking. I mean, shocking, yes, but controversial it i wouldn't consider it a torture porn because the violence actually has a purpose in telling the story it's not just shock value but sadly critics and moviegoers didn't see it as that because kubrick had was forced to withdraw the film from distribution in the uk and the ban would stay that way at least until after his passing in 1999
1: yeah it's kubrick was not that guy but he had to In order to make good art, I think in his mind, you have to do things that make people uncomfortable. Like there are themes we're human beings. He was about the human condition. And humans, we do terrible things. Like we do terrible things, you know, evil things. But Kubrick was so brilliant to show that is a symptom of the society we're in. So he's not glorifying it. He's trying to show us that, you know, we can focus on all this guy is evil and this guy that. No, but you got to think about it from the wider picture. Like you got to look at his backstory. You got to look at his parenting. You got to look at his schooling, all those factors, all those things factor into whether a guy is a criminal and things like that. Their are choices in life. And so I don't get why people, I mean, I'm going to stand, it's uncomfortable, but I mean, that's not, you can't say, oh, Kubrick is a pedophile or Kubrick is a, He's he's glorifying him that. No, it's just he ha, he has to do that so that we can examine ourselves as a society, right? And I think he did it really well.
0: He did, yeah. Like this film, it's more of a, a cautionary tale, really, than an enjoyable film. And I think it works with that it's almost like a precursor to 2019's Joker with how they both they both portray. Uh, certain people, a psycho a psychopath and a mentally ill person and they are like that because of society, because it was nature, not nurture. Both these characters, Alex DeLarge and Arthur Fleck are, as you mentioned, they're results of the virus, they're symptoms of a larger disease. Yeah. I mean, it's,
1: it's clear when you watch the film, when you watch Joker and you watch Clockwork Orange, it's clear, it's Crystal clear. You look at the imagery. You look at the walls in society in Clockwork Orange. You look at the parents. You look at his father. His father was never there. His father was always working. So, and he was, and they were both oblivious to what he was doing. You see, and that's exactly accurate. Because a lot of times, when and you see it in the news all the time. Whenever these kids do terrible things, the mom or dad is always usually the mom is always like, "My son would never do that," you know. But but then you realize either they're not paying attention or they're oblivious to it. Right. And so that's hard. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because it's kind of your fault as a parent because right. <laughs> you're not watching your kid. So Kruber was brilliant at doing that. Like how he looked at it from a macro level of why these things happen or the what can lead to things like that, whether it's crime or and other stuff, stuff like that. So
0: you was know. yeah. And he would continue this winning streak in four years later with Barry Lyndon, which is probably one of his most underrated films as well, and probably also one of his most beautiful films as well. well. The same can be said for every one of his movies, but Barry Lyndon deserves special mention because every single shot, they really captured the feel, the aesthetic of what life was like back then in the 18th century. And even more impressive, all of the film's beautiful shots, they were shot in natural light. No, like, no lighting stands, all shot in in candlelight to really emulate what life was like in that century, that time period.
1: Yeah, yeah, he used specific lenses. Uh, Zeiss, Zeiss is a great company. They make amazing lenses. A lot of filmmakers use them. They do a great job on the cameras. But he uses specific uh, Zeiss lenses. And the NASA, he got them from NASA because, you know, he... Did 2001 and he had an association. I guess he had a collaboration with NASA to get the lens, the lenses. And, um, it, it mirrors it. Di- it's a direct, uh, replication of like William Hogarth paintings. If you look at William Hogarth and, and his paintings. A lot of them have similar lighting schemes where it's not completely sun, sunlight. Everything is illuminated by either the lights inside the candles and. But the way he does the painting is where it shows, it tells a story. It tells, like, the situation from a power dynamic or, like, a social dynamic or whatever. But it's like a perfect scene of life at the time. And and uh, Kubrick was able to translate that to the screen.
0: Yeah, he was, yeah. Indeed. And, and also, watching this film, it feels very much like watching a a Shakespeare tragedy come to life as well. Very much so. It's like a, a coming-of-age story. We're following a rags-to-riches story, which then turns into the reverse of it. And the one thing I want to mention as well is the, the character of Lord Bullington. Man, I, I hated that guy. Like, such a little shit. Because... <laughs> yeah uh, yeah he like, yeah, he does well he was right, he does have a point that Barry is um a social climber, an opportunist who doesn't really love his mother and is only marrying her for her wealth and fortune, but the thing is, he's not really an angel himself because he takes out his frustrations on his little stepbrother. and also I read this online, but keep in mind that since this was in the eighteenth century. Irishmen were not considered white at the time. so No, no, they weren't. So Bullington's <laughs> behavior yeah. towards Barry is just motivated by pure, by, by racism, really.
1: Well, he said racist things to him. He said, like, at the end, when I think, or near the end of the film, he said something racist, like, you are this soldier climber or whatever. He said a Pacific Irish um, slang, uh, Irish insult. But yeah, it carried over into America. That's why when the Irish first came to America, they were at the bottom. Because like, you know at the top was the the WASP, the, the Protestant white power structure, white Christian at the top of the food chain. Right. And uh, the Irish people, they looked down on the Irish. And yeah, they just were not seen as white. They're not seen as equal to them. Um, yeah. Especially from the English perspective. And so that kind of what that kind of probably what motivated Barry to try to climb up that ladder because he wants to prove himself because he's Irish and he wants to be like those British, British lords or British people of prominence. And uh, so that's probably why he did all the bad things he did to, to do that, to climb up the ladder. He did. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. There was this element of... Yeah, Barry wasn't a great character, but also his that guy wasn't great either. No, And I don't think Barry was a racist, but that guy... The guy you're talking about was probably worse, because he is a racist, and he's... Yeah, Barry was mean to him, but that doesn't warrant what he was saying to him.
0: Right. Yeah, and also, it kind of irritates me that... When this film first came out, also uh, Ryan O'Neal, the actor who played Barry, was criticized for his lack of emotion in many of the scenes. But that's exactly the point, because in that time, in the 18th century, aristocrats, they had to put that you know, stoic facade. They cannot show any emotion. They must show their strength through lack of emotion. I love how Kubrick did that. He did a lot of research on what life was like in the 18th century back then. It made the film look very authentic. Like we are in that time period, not just watching it all unfold.
1: Yeah. He took a, before he made this film, he was going to do a Napoleon film. And so he did a lot of research in that period. So he's like, Oh, I can't do the Napoleon film. This and that didn't work out. So I'll just use it for this one. And um, it's, it was amazing. Like he, he watched the film and he's, you're, you're completely immersed in that world in the 18th century during the um, seven years war in history. And yeah, it's just a very, yeah, it's just very immersive. You know, you feel like you're actually there and it's so meticulous, you know, how Kubrick was able to transport you from the set design, from the locations. I mean, he shot in England and Ireland, I believe. And it's just, it's a sight to behold. It looks amazing.
0: Does, mm-hmm, quite did. And now, we're gonna d- d- deep dive into scary territory here. Cause here's Johnny. <laughs> the Shining. The Shining is probably Kubrick's most mainstream film, really. It's the one that many people I hear keep talking about. And not hard to see why. The Shining is one of the greatest horror films of all time. And it's very unique as well compared to what we're used to today, because one of Kubrick's intents with The Shining was it had to be devoid of any cliches or conventions. And that's what I love about the movie. No, no jump scares at all. And he really did great, despite this being his very first horror film. And even though it wasn't quite faithful to the to the novel uh, by Stephen King.
1: Yeah, it's one of the best horror films. It's my favorite horror film of all time. Uh, it's more psychological horror, but still, that's still horror, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah, it, it really scared me and unnerving when I watched it. I think I told you, uh, you, you and Dane, a few episodes, several episodes ago that I watched it on the back end of 2019 for the first time. And it scared the crap out of me. Um, it's to this day, I don't know if I could. I'm gonna rewatch it soon, but it's gonna be hard because it's very scary. But well, the filmmaking was great in that, you know. Yeah, you talked about the use of steady cam, it was a big thing at the time. And then, uh, uh, his, he does have his zoom, his zoom ins when there's one scene where he zooms in on, uh, Cochrane on the, the, uh, the, um, the housekeeper, the, not the housekeeper, but the, the black guy that was, um, that has a shining with, um, with the sun. That was pretty cool. And yeah, it's just everything about that. And there's so much symbolism too in that film. Mm-hmm. You, you and Matthew did a good job in your episode talking about it. Thanks. And, but yeah, you, you guys were on, were on the money. You guys were on point. I mean, yeah, you could have multiple interpretations. People were thinking that, you know, yeah, that documentary room
0: 237 or. Right. Yeah, where people were thinking about conspiracy theories.
1: But I think, uh, I think I agree with Matthews. I think he talked about that episode where it's really about America wiping out Native Americans. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like the imagery. Yeah, just wiping out a culture, basically. And how. All those hauntings are probably due to like because of the fact it's on a native american burial ground so so yeah it's
0: but yeah overall it's just a great um, great film was and very visually stunning too i i just can't get over how beautiful the the floor patterns of the overlook hotel are they're just mesmerizing very surreal as well and yeah this film surreal would be the perfect way to describe the shining really it feels very dreamlike like we're descending into hell also and
1: oh for sure like there's a lot of red there's a lot of uses of the color red in there's there's very narrow corridors you know even when you're walking to the main lobby it feels very like oh. walking into a hellish dimension almost like and the way i mean it goes back to stephen king when he was inspired Writing the novel, how uh, you look at these, man, these huge hotels, right? But all type of stuff could be happening in those hotels, right? Especially when nobody's there, right? Or, right. Or or when you know that 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 would be that could be ripe for supernatural horror, right? Mm-hmm, right. Like that.
0: Right now, when I first watched The Shining, I was a kid at the time, and i i didn't I didn't quite appreciate it because it. I felt I wasn't quite endeared by its slow burn and the fact that barely anything happens but growing up now I actually I love it really it's one of it's my second favorite film by Stanley Kubrick and I really love how it's very slow and methodical in the pacing you you know like you never you're never sure when something horrible is going to happen The music is very eerie and even the camera shots are enough to scare you because many of the film's shots have like outsider perspectives as if the characters are being watched, as if they're being stalked from afar. And even better is that much like with 2001, it's ambiguous. Very little is explained because in the novel, it was already explicitly made clear that the hotel is haunted and there are ghosts, But in the movie, it's more left to interpretation. Like, we're not sure if any of the horrible things the Torrance family are experiencing is because they're having a cabin fever or if there really is something something supernatural going on. We don't know. And not knowing what is actually happening makes it even more terrifying, I feel.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of... Because Kubrick is good at being ambiguous in a lot of his films. I mean, he, are, he hardly ever explains it, which is good. Like, he shouldn't explain it. But that's kind of why it's ripe with so many interpretations, so many conspiracy theories about not just this film, but some of his other films. And But Shining is usually one that people refer to, either that or Eyes Wide Shut. But um, but yeah, it's just... He, he's able to give you he doesn't give you everything he gives you like visuals and you have to you have to do the work yourself you have to put two and two together but kubrick likes having multiple people coming out of seeing his films and having completely different interpretations each each person having a complete different that's what he wanted that's what he strived for
0: he did different and, interpretations and he succeeded as well and Even if the novel wasn't, if if the film wasn't quite faithful to the novel, it was still a pretty great film. Even now, given how it didn't quite receive the proper respect or attention back in 1980, Shelley Duvall even got nominated a Razzie Award for worst actress. Which, by the way, personally speaking, I think her acting was just perfect in the movie. It really shows just how terrifying both the hotel. And her husband really are. And as we've discussed already in our trending episode, it it really shows that uh, Kubrick actually abused Shelley Duvall on set and enforced method acting, really. So the real monster in the film that Shelley was terrified of wasn't Jack or the hotel, but Stanley Kubrick himself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Kubrick can have that effect, you know. I mean, Shelley Duvall was in a few movies before then. She her career was kind of getting up, but after this, she her career kind of just died out, and she just left acting. But uh, but yeah, it was all about him. It's all about this. It could be selfish, you know, if you look at it. Yeah, it's probably a selfish thing. But it was all about him, you know, making sure his vision was perfect and making sure everything suited, everything helped his vision. And in order, in some sick way, I guess, in order to get Shelley Duvall to actually be this scared woman in the film he had to i guess he had to you know have kubrick had to be you know a little scary himself and how he treated her and and that's why and jack nicholson helped too because he told me this that nicholson was used to be a firefighter so when he was actually like hacking that that door he was he was a guy that was pretty good at it so yeah that can scare you you know (laughs) And I guess that can scare Shelley Duvall in her
0: performance. Oh, yeah. And she was not told ahead of time that she was going to have an axe rammed through the bathroom door. So her reaction was genuine, really. Just, my God, just poor Shelley Duvall, really. And also, it helps. I read that the Overlook Hotel, they didn't just pick out some random hotel they found across the street. They built the entire thing from scratch. And filming took place over for five years. And... I know. I don't know if you know this, but the entire hotel, the layout of the hotel, it looks very off the architecture. But it actually was planned by Kubrick himself. Nothing was an accident. It really shows that the Overlook Hotel is not what it appears to be.
1: Yeah, it was filmed at these uh, studios in London, EMI, L Street Studios. And yeah, they built from scratch. I mean, I looked at pictures of it and it's just amazing, the level of detail that went into it. Uh, because, you know, Kubrick really liked the book. He really liked St- Stephen King's book. And I'm sure when he was reading it, he probably imagined what it would look like or how he would do it. And I think even though King doesn't like, Stephen King doesn't like the adaptation, I still think... That overlook hotel probably is accurate to what King wrote, I would imagine. You know, you need like this big hotel that's can be a good setting for like supernatural bad activity, you know, and it has, but there has to be an hotel that's slightly off looking too, if you look closely at it. And that adds to the horror in the film. Like how, why does this hotel seem so off? You know, the stairways and the, the architecture and the long hallways. And, even the even where the bar is, it's like this long hallway at the end mm-hmm. with these two doors. You know, it's like going into another hellish dimension, like I said, or like a pocket dimension of just where evil spirits just are all over the place. It's just yeah, it's just very it's a very scary place. Yeah,
0: indeed, yeah, definitely one of the best horror films of all time, really and it inverted all of the tropes the cliches that we're used to seeing in today's world of horror and we can all thank stanley kubrick for that for his very first and only horror film and um now, yeah sure he... um you no, you go first
1: no i was just gonna say for sure like it's I mean, Stanley Kubrick, I'm sure he knew about horror films. Uh, he actually did the film because horror films were coming very popular in the 80, early 80s, across the 80s. Exorcist was, came out and was a big success. So I guess Kubrick was like, oh, let me try that. Let me try that genre. And I'm sure he's cool himself on, you know, what scared him or what, what the best scary films he thought. Yeah, he just chose. I'm just not going to do that. He's exceeded. I'm going to do my own thing. And uh, The Shining was just a great vehicle for him to to do that. Indeed. Yeah, and inverted all the tropes. Yeah, all the tropes.
0: Indeed, yeah. And now we're going to move on to Full Metal Jacket, which would be his last anti-war film. And that movie is probably, wow, just wow. First off, Arlie Ermey, props to the mat he and it helps too that uh he is an actual drill sergeant so he wasn't acting he was literally doing his own thing
1: yeah arlie ham arlie your army yeah he's yeah like i think he told me and you know, i guess i knew this too that he improvised uh, kubrick allowed him to improvise a lot of his lines to be more accurate to what he said at the time or how a drill sergeant would say just say those things and uh but again, it's this whole, again, it's another, you see, it's a parallel. It's a better version of Fear and Desire, but it can also be like a parallel to, like a sister movie to Path of Glory. Path of Glory is more about top-down generals and, uh, generals and um, soldiers. This one is about the trainings aspect of it, where the military school, you know, them going to base camp. And Arlie Army, Arlie Army's character being that
0: symptom of dysfunction in this in the institution, right? In the military, agree
1: from the training aspect. Oh yeah, yeah. that can lead the that can make these soldiers become really messed up when they go out there to the war
0: psychologically. Indeed. Yeah, and I mentioned to you this before, a general complaint I have with people is that, yes, um, I was really surprised that uh, Sergeant Hartman, he gets killed off in the very first half of the film. I thought he would last longer, but it's honestly, I honestly found the first half to be far stronger than the second half of the film. This doesn't make the film uh, bad by a long shot. It's just that, I don't know, maybe I'm just used to seeing all of these uh, war movies, uh, Vietnam war movies that, yeah, but it's not the movie's fault, of course. I feel that the message, the war is hell message was better explained in the first half of the movie than in the second half. After that, it gets to a pretty much a standard war film after all the scenes at the training camp.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you see it in a lot of films, you know, a lot of. You look at like um, Green Zone or with Matt Damon or Saving Private Ryan or a lot of these films, you know, it becomes like, oh, like this is what humanity, this is what war can make us do, and whatever we become, um, you know, that type of ending. But it's interesting that um, the the film ended that way because, yeah, it shows that the movie, the war can actually make you. Desensitized, where you actually like being in war. But also when they, when the, when they found out that the sniper was actually a Viet Cong woman. Yeah, like Viet Cong women were active, and women were active in the Viet Cong. That's that was, that's been uh, historically uh, proven, historically known. So that was interesting that they were. Cooper was able to change the dynamic there where they were expecting a guy, but they saw a woman. So that changes the whole thing. (laughs) Uh, But, but yeah, I feel the, the movie was more about, and it's another downer ending, but it's more about, uh, Matthew Modine's character, just, loving war or like being, the sense of where he gets thrills from it or whatnot. And the whole thing is about, you know, critiquing masculinity and, I guess people would say toxic masculinity, but it was critiquing that. Um, But also, it's just more of... It's more about military brainwashing. Like, you just Mm. become something else.
0: Right. Or you can become something else. Exactly. Because, yeah, by the end of the movie, after they killed the enemy, it's not really... doesn't feel like a victory because he he did the the thousand-yard stare. He's really... He's lost his... Humanity, really, and at the end of it, even if they won, they haven't really, really won. And that is Kubrick's bread and butter, really his knack for dehumanization, showing the worst side of ourselves.
1: Yeah, and it makes sense because that's during the Vietnam War, and you know, everybody's pretty much in agreement that that was a war that should not have been fought. Uh, yeah, you know lbj and kfk were trying to stamp out communism and but think about it people are people are lately of the mind that we really went there for the resources we really went there to you know for their own for our own economic advancement because you look at history you know there's always this we export democracy but there's always this element of you know it's for financial gains i mean. You can go down the list of CIA takeovers, the assassinations, government coups. You can just go down the list of history where that happened. So mm-hmm. I think Vietnam War was just another example of that.
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah. Futile. Yeah. And, and to cap this episode off, we're going to get to the end of an era with eyes wide shut. Which came out the year I was born, and this is was Kubrick's final film before his death. And might I say, it would be an understatement if I say that this film is one huge mind screw.
1: Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's very much a dreamlike odyssey. It's very much, I mean, the shots itself. It's set in New York, and it's always it's, the whole thing is set during the nighttime, so that adds on to the dreamlike aspect where there's a lot of dark. Shadows and, like, the light is always in the Pacific light. It's not too It's not too lit up. It's, like, room temperature light. It's like, um, even when they're at the party, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, it's very much um, not well lit. It's a little bit darker as if you're going to sleep or if, you know, because it's during the nighttime, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the whole film is this odyssey of him basically... Is trying to repress his sexuality, or in the sense of wanting to have an affair himself. And he, but he's seeing sex impact everybody he meets in some aspect. He meets a prostitute. He meets the eventually he meets the prostitute's friend, who kind of wants to have sex with him too. He see even when he goes to the costume, he sees the guy that owns it, and his daughter is having sex or was having sex with those two older guys. So he's seeing how sex permeates everybody's everybody's life in that film and he's kind of like you know you know being waited throughout it you know being walking through it so yeah it's just amazing um it is yeah great
0: film it it's almost like uh, it reminds me a lot of alice in wonderland really with its surrealism colors and In fact, one of the characters, her name is even Alice, Nicole Kidman's character. And my God, the entire scene, the the orgy scene, it feels like something straight out of a horror movie. (laughs) The Latin chanting, it feels like like something straight out of uh, Dante's Inferno. Also, like we are literally in hell and just the masks and even the the naked women there, even if they really are, you know, naked, none of it feels titillating at all. It looks just so, so wrong. And also, it's scary in a realistic way, given how it focuses on all this, the, the secret societies that the rich go to all these sex rings, which have gotten even more relevant, especially with the whole Jeffrey Epstein scandal.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this this conspiracy theory that Kubrick was killed because by the Illuminati because he exposed, he, he was saying like how, you know, he was showing the secret society's orgies and things like that. And, but in the, the context, yeah, the secret societies. There are there are they are out there. I mean, historically, you look at Freemasons, you look at Skull and Bones, you look at you know a lot of these secret societies, and they do they do things that are kind of weird. Like, it's all about a power. It's always a power thing, but it's always power among over, over other people, but it's also power amongst themselves. Like, I know in Freemasons, there's this ritual where you're naked in a coffin and you have to explain your sexual history, you know, but it's all about them trying to have power over you. So in case you go against them, they can use that against you, basically. And in Skull of Bones, there's stories of, like, weird stuff that they do and, uh, so, and the reason that, and this movie is the reason that people believe in Illuminati because this came out in the 90s. So in the 90s, that's when the internet came out. So people had a forum to talk about things they see and they can talk about what they believe and what their worldview is. And, you know, that, that can increase, that can make conspiracy theories promulgate, you know? And so, yeah, it's just, but I will say this, like, that stuff i hope i don't get i don't I hope people don't come after me but like say that stuff does happen i mean rich people they have these parties, and you look at like there's, there's so many examples you look at playboy mansion you look at uh rich people everywhere they have these orgies and actually the whole i'll say this one last thing on that is that the whole uh, orgy scene, or even the house itself, was inspired by, there was a ball in 1972 by the Rothschilds called the ball, Surrealist Ball. Ball, And a lot of people that joined it, I mean, you had Audrey Hepburn, you had uh, a female Rothschild, I forgot her name, I think her name was Maya Rothschild. Yeah, Salvador Dali was there. And you had all these pro- people, celebrities, people of prominence, dressing in these weird masks. And like, you know, I think one of them had like a, a deer mask or something. So yeah, but there was just these, I mean, no one knows what happened for sure, but there's these stories, unless you actually went there, you don't know, but there's these stories of like weird stuff they were doing behind closed doors. So, and I'm pretty sure Kubrick did research on secrets of style. So, so yeah, man, that's Kubrick wasn't, that was probably pretty accurate to what they probably do, oh, but it's, it's scary because that's, you're seeing people doing like, bad stuff and like evil stuff.
0: What I find really interesting about this film is how, um, you know, it's a mystery film. And the whole point of mystery movies is that you solve the mystery. But here in Eyes Wide Shut, the mystery is unsolved. It's treated as though it's of secondary importance. And again, it helps. And that's not a problem. It helps to enhance the story. And um, even when we find out that it was all a ruse, all just an act. It doesn't make it any better because we don't really see what happened that night. We only hear it from um, uh, Tom Cruise's friend, like so. We have to take his word for it.
1: Yeah, that's what Kubrick is good at. I mean, this work, it works for this film again, so Kubrick likes to Expectations or separate tropes and and then it's seen as it's still ambiguous. But you know, a Ziegler, uh, played by Sydney Pollack, great actor. It's like, um, no man, she wasn't killed. She just overdosed. There's, this happened. We tried to scare you when you know, when there, all this stuff was happening. We were trying to scare you because you're you were investigating stuff, and sometimes that can happen. I mean, certain groups do that. I think. Some news they, if you're investigating them, they'll try to like scare you and do things to you to get you off. But so it's ambiguous, but I'm of the mind that I mean, let's face it, it's Kubrick, so it's eyes wide shut. So I think they did something sinister, but in my perspective, it's something sinister. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's a film that it's a film that kind of comments on us as when we, because, you know, mystery films like the fact that we even like mystery films as people, we like to connect the dots and I think you're expecting like, oh this is this evil organization and things like that that's kind of why people believe in conspiracy theories because it helps them make sense of the world, like why the world the way it is and all these things are happening but then you're, when you're given the truth or when you're given like a scenario where the something maybe it's an accident or there's something else that explains it it kind of doesn't feel satisfying so right yeah, i can see why tom cruise's character was like what like how does this how does that lead into somebody dying and then he expects like some they were doing something evil but then he was like no he's just overdosed <laughs> but yeah there's ambiguity but i can see why did that.
0: yeah in fact all of the scenes after the the reveal, the whole the orgy scene, are were some of the most stressful moments in a film because there is this air of uncertainty, uh, ominous, like something horrible is going to happen. There's all this buildup and then reaches to an anti-climax where we find out it was all staged from the beginning. And it actually works, again, to the film's advantage how... The story, I mean, the the twist, their whole mystery is treated as though it's of secondary importance because Eyes Wide Shut, it's really a story about lust, uh, sexual repression, and the question of infidelity or fidelity in marriage. Hell, even the password to get to the orgy is Fidelio, which is a Latin derivative of fidelity or faithfulness.
1: Yeah, yeah, this whole thing was about fidelity. I mean, obviously, I mean, you see Tom Cruise in, uh, in the limo when he's walking the street. He keeps His mind keeps thinking about uh, that dream that Nicole Kim and his wife, Alice, told him about. Of her, not the dream, but the memory that she had. of She saw this Navy officer, and she was completely attracted to him, you know, lustful for him. She, in the back of her mind, she's like, I could have left you for him. And so but that happens, you know, with guys – get jealous, and guys hear that, and then they that stick with you, like, you see that image in your head of, you see the image of him the Navy officer having sex with Nicole Kidman with Alice, and he keeps repeating itself in his head, and he's getting more and more more and more agitated, or more irritated by it, because like, presumably he seems like, I don't think his character ever cheated on him, so I think that's why it it's very hard, and Guys, us guys, we can get territorial, man. Like, if we feel that a guy is trying to talk to our wives, or girlfriends, you know, we can get kind of, I don't care who you are, you can be freaking the most secure guy in the world. You'll still have doubts in your head, like, oh, is she really, is this guy going to take her away from me? So, yeah, that was a great aspect of it. And then, um, yeah, it kind of ties into masculinity a little bit. A little bit because you know those two those idiots that walk by him on the street and call him a homo and a faggot and things like that. Mm-hmm. So Kubrick likes to play on that too.
0: Yes. On anything, but,
1: but yeah, it's definitely a film about lust
0: and fidelity. Right, and by and also. It's it's also no accident that many of the shots of the film have Christmas trees in the background, which kind of ties into the whole theme of family and giving, which again ties to the theme of fidelity of Bill. Uh, will he or won't he stay faithful? And by the end, he he decides to go with it. He decides to stay faithful to with his wife, with Alice. And it's probably one of the most happiest endings in a Kubrick film, really, how she finds out about that he's been about his infidelity and his little sexual encounters. But by the end of this, I had to work together to make their marriage work and decide that there's only one li- thing left to do, which is, of course, fuck. Right? That's the last word ever spoken in a Kubrick film. Just. Genius. Genius,
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a brilliant. Um, but yeah, it's like marriage is a. See, that's another. scene. that's another institution that Kubrick um, is is not critiquing, but he's trying to show how it can be weakened or how it's it can. It's a good institution because Kubrick was married. I mean, he was married to. Uh, he's had two wives. And his second wife, Christiane. And Casa of Glory is the woman I was singing. In the end. Oh, really? And they've I been did not together for that. years, and that, but it looks like Kubrick likes that institution of marriage. And, and it's a story I spoke to him because um, he, you know, he adapted. He read the novel, he adapted it, and uh, yeah, that's an institution where it can be threatened by, by again, by. Like you said, dehumanization, the whole animal instincts, primal nature against the institutions and social conventions. So, yeah, it's really, it's a powerful, powerful game story.
0: Yes. Yeah, truly is. And above all else, Scythe White Shot is served also as an incredible swan song for Stanley Kubrick, seeing how this was his last film, came out, premiered six days after his passing. And after that, like watching Eyes Wide Shut, it's like, feels bittersweet. It's like saying goodbye to an old friend, really.
1: Yeah, it's, even whenever I look up the film, I'm always somber because, uh, this is the last film. And at the time, when I was younger, I was like, what is this? This just looks weird. It's about people worshiping sex and like people doing secrets stuff the secret. <laughs> but and Nicole Kimmon and Tom Cruise were big at the time. They are like a super couple at the time. So, were. so yeah, well, yeah, I watched it. I, I watched it a few weeks ago, a few days ago. It's a great film, man. Um, yeah, it's just sad that that's his last film. And, um, it's amazing that uh, he, Tom Cruise and Kokem were able to work with him. And it seemed like they had a great relationship together. Yeah, he was 70 years old. And, I'm caught up with him. So whenever I see that film, it's, or look it, up, look it up, it's sad because that was his last film.
0: Yes, yes. But his footprint that he left on our favorite industry will never disappear anytime soon. And no. that's... And we did it. We covered the entirety of his filmography, all the way from Fear and Desire to Eyes Wide Shut, and I must say, it has been an incredible journey watching the entirety of Stanley Kubrick's films, really. I feel our entire episode has been building towards this very moment. I've This entire year, I've watched all of his filmography, starting with The Shining and ending now with Lolita. And I have to say, Kubrick, sorry, Nolan, but Kubrick has officially usurped your position as my all-time favorite filmmaker of all time. It's just that all of his films really they, they look beautiful are beautiful and speak to us as well on an empathetic and humanistic level
1: yeah like whenever I categorize or have my list of favorite directors I always do current and of all time so I don't want to say because you know if you say to me it's kind of weird if I say how my favorite director is Hitchcock but he's not really around anymore <laughs> But my Nolan is my current favorite, but yeah, Kubrick is like number two or three on my all time. Because uh, Kubrick is a huge influence on Nolan. You can look at it. You can look at Interstellar, the whole Interstellars, the shots and the, the way he did the camera, the space scenes. It's kind of similar to 2001. Even the Inception hallway fight, the hallway fight in Inception, was inspired by uh, the Ferris wheel thing in 2001. So yeah, Kubrick is a huge influence, huge huge influence on Nolan. Uh, but that just shows the power of his his talent and his ability. And, uh, he's a director that I think every year or every decade he's getting more and more appreciated. Yeah, because he was a game changer. He was a very unconventional director very unconventional director and he tackled a lot of aspects of the human condition and uh, he, was, he did comedy well he did horror well he did epics well he did like every genre basically you could think of. could so
0: that's
1: why he's uh, one of the all-time greats
0: and rightfully so too and yes although for the casual movie goal where his films may be very complex that that's the beauty of it all. That's it, still a worthwhile experience because it's a testament to the power of storytelling, really. Like stories that tell us not just of who we are, but who we can be as people, as ever changing human beings, for better or for worse. I think that is Kubrick's secret weapon, really, his bread and butter. The our understanding of the human condition like stripping away all those layers and figuring out what is it that makes us who we are yeah
1: he tackled everything about us he tackled our social institutions from war war, marriage criminal justice uh, military government in terms of executive branch and military from all facets um, yeah it's just amazing he's a guy that was a student of history was a student of literature of film and he used all of his skill set to um, to take a look at humanity from a macro lens you know yeah his characters do his stories do have individual characters journeys and things like that it's almost always on the backdrop of an institution or society that they're a part of.
0: Indeed. And, and
1: it's amazing. I don't think a lot of directors can do that. Um, some do, but it's it's you could tell, like, they don't put a lot of, newer films, newer directors, you can tell they don't put a lot of, too much thought um, into it. It's just more about the character, their story, and then tangentially it's about society, but with Kubrick, it was the whole package.
0: was well, a full package, really, yeah. And on top of that, as I mentioned in the intro, he has inspired, influenced so many filmmakers today, and even aspiring filmmakers, such as us, I must say, because, yes, um, for the long, what what really made Kubrick take, take Nolan's place as my favorite director is just that it's, it's something unique. I've never... Something unique, something that is not just original or out of the box, but something meaningful as well. It's, yeah, it's all, it's beautiful. The acting is great. The cinematography is well shot. But what matters at its core is what it's trying to say to us as people, people who want to, to change, to redeem ourselves, to better ourselves over time.
1: Oh, like what Cooper does in his films? Yes. Yeah, yeah, like he's—he's he's always. I mean, writers do it, screenwriters, filmmakers, journalists to some extent. They're always trying to critique or something in society they feel needs to be addressed. And it doesn't mean that they, you know, they—they they think they're better than us or, you know, or or superior to us. It's because they want us to, to actually mobilize and fix it. Otherwise. What's the point, right? That's their job, right? To point out things we need to change. And Kubrick is just doing the same thing in terms of being a filmmaker. He's pointing out that our human nature, no matter how you you try to dress it up and make it look nice, have these institutions, we're always going to fall prey to our urges. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's hopeless. Either, I think Kubrick is for the mind, either we need to change the institution, or we need to be more careful of our urges. I think he's, you can interpret it, you can watch his films, and I think he's gonna be on the side of one of those two. But either one, it's, it's, a, it's coming from a place of concern, which is good as an artist, as a person that's trying to critique society and provide, uh, provide us the opportunity to be better.
0: Exactly. Very, very true. Yeah. And in short, this is a filmmaker whose work who we will not stop talking about, and you will not forget anytime soon to anyone who is wants to familiarize themselves with kubrick you're you what you're about to watch in his films, you're watching something that has never been seen before. He truly will go as one of the greats really is. A master of his own craft, very determined, ambitious, and meticulous in his approach. All the qualities needed for a superb filmmaker and storyteller, really. Yeah, it goes back to him.
1: I mean, he's a very smart guy. I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he, his schooling was kind of, he wasn't a great student when he was younger, but he was a great chess player. He loved playing chess. He played. He's from New York, so he played a lot in New York. Washington Square and he said he always had a very curious mind so he would read up on everything like any subject that interested him he would read like a bunch of books on it so he could be he can decide for himself what his position is what his perspective is and so that dedication lends itself to when you watch film and you see the level of skill and the level of talent from the direction from the writing from the the production design set design film editing cinematography there's there's a huge motivation of and uh eagerness to do a great job and and he was a perfectionist too so that probably explains why his films are so good (laughs) indeed
0: indeed all hail stanley kubrick (laughs) and that looks like all the time we have left for tonight's finale Thank you so much, Emmanuel, for coming here for this long-awaited special. And I'd like to thank all of our other guests, new and old, for all your support in this show this past year. Our show has hit a bit of a, has had some, has been of a bumpy ride, really, with some ups and downs, but nonetheless, we managed to really, really make for one a hell of an experience. And it, and it all wouldn't be possible without the help of my friends, including the guests as well. And thank you all for listening to Sin City, City this year. Our show will reach new plans and updates starting next February. And I, I give my big thanks also to our Citizen king himself and our boy from Texas, Emmanuel Akinola. Say hello to the people, Emmanuel.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad to be here. And I've kind of been here a year now and it's going on strong. I'm always glad to talk film with you, films with you. And yeah, and I listen to your other episodes. You have great guests like Matthew and my friend Tyreek or Rico. And uh, and also, your, uh, I believe your uh, teacher in your internship, Chris, I believe. Yes. He's great. Uh, I feel loud images. So, yeah, man, I'm excited for the future, with
0: the future wants for podcast. I'm glad for that too, as well as yours. Till then, this has been Sin City, live for CMRU.ca and seal out images. I am your host, Nick Manessis, and I'll see you next year, same time as always, here on Sin City.